Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Leedka. And we're really excited to welcome you to our conversation we're about to have today with a very interesting guest. Um, Kate Mingoya LaFortune oversees the climate and land use programming at Groundwork USA, which is a national network of grassroots, people-centered environmental justice organizations. Uh, Kate has degrees in biology and history from Reed College and a master's of city planning from MIT. She publish- She's publishing an everyday guide for local climate action this spring with Island Press, and she lives in New England. Um, and with that, we're really excited to hear from you today, Kate, about know what your organization's about, um, what you guys are doing to um, combat uh, rising temperatures and protect our communities. So um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Yeah. So the, you know, I think we have had the opportunity to become familiar, Melanie and I have, with uh, some of the great work that Groundwork USA is doing around, um, you know, climate safe neighborhoods and rising temperatures. But for those of our listeners who may not be aware, Kate, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Groundwork USA and describe uh, some of the goals around this climate safe neighborhoods project that Groundwork USA has? Yeah, Groundwork USA is the national support organization for 21 people-centered environmental justice organizations. So we're all across the country, everywhere from San Diego to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to Cincinnati, Ohio. So we're experiencing the climate crisis differently from state to state and city to city, but we're seeing a lot of overlap in the ways that we can address the way that people experience things like extreme heat. Um, Generally, Groundwork Trusts are uh, work in lower-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color places that are formerly redlined, that have a disproportionate amount of impermeable pavement. So think like parking lots, driveways, blacktop rooftops, um, a really low tree canopy cover. So not many trees. And when those trees are there, they're kind of skinny and scraggly and small um, and not a lot of green space to help cool the, the built environment. And so the work that we do through our Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership is to prove that there's a path forward both by mm-hmm. making changes to the built environment, so getting shade structures put in, um, densifying the urban tree canopy cover, removing pavement, things that will help today to reduce the temperature, but also looking ahead, understanding that our communities look the way they do for a reason. They don't look like this by accident. They're not going to change by accident. So looking to change the systems at the local level that have made certain neighborhoods hotter than other neighborhoods, things like getting... Um, changes to budget cycles or master planning processes, getting the local government to redistribute trees to neighborhoods that haven't had them. So all of this work that we do in the 16 cities that are part of the Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership are interested in changes for now and changes for the future. That's really fascinating, Kate, um, that you, one thing you mentioned was that, um, you know, these neighborhoods don't look like this accidentally. And um, that's something that we definitely try to Um, emphasize on our podcast is that we need to understand like what systems, what practices have been put in place um, and have led to what we see today. And I think it's really, you know, really great that you guys are putting an emphasis on, you know, that education aspect as well, you know, discussing, you know, how things came to be. Obviously, that's important, being able to find a constructive and effective solution. So that's super cool. I'm also really curious to know um, what inspired you to get uh, to specialize in climate resilience and land use, and how did you develop your passion for creating climate-safe neighborhoods? 
I, I grew up in a really fantastic neighborhood. I'm originally from Queens, New York. It was this a great neighborhood with a pack of kids. I was thinking about it recently. There's 12 or 13 of us that would just run up and down the street, playing double dutch, playing chalk, running around. Uh, but we also lived in an environmental justice community, right, at the elbow of two major expressways. There were not very many trees in our neighborhood. There was a lot of pavement. Um, and all of us kids had asthma. All of us kids suffered from extreme heat, from air pollution um, back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and those neighborhoods that I, neighborhoods like the ones that I lived in are plentiful. We see them in every state across the country. Um, and my first career out of uh, undergrad, I, I had studied biology and history, was actually working as a New York City public school teacher in neighborhoods that were really similar to the ones that I grew up in. And I found myself telling my students the same things that I'd heard from adults. You need to work hard. You need to get an education so you can get out of this neighborhood and you can have a choice. And it took me about four years to realize what a horrifying thing that is to say to a kid that you've got to leave your home, your family, your language in order to have clean air, in order to not have heat stroke from these rising temperatures. Um, and so that's what transitioned me from education into uh, urban planning work. So I've worked for public housing authorities and, and have been lucky the last uh, five and, and a bit years to work with Groundwork USA, which is very much focused on the idea of putting residents in the driver's seat to make changes to their built environment. These changes are not um, mystical. They're not out of reach. They're things that we can do today, this afternoon. They're things that we need to do with the, the leadership and um, ideas of residents who are familiar with these communities. So it's a little bit about how I got how I got into this space. And I, I think that this yeah. is such a great time to do it because we've got historical investments paired with um, really groundbreaking science and studies that are telling us about the impact of things like extreme heat on physical health and on mental health and on local conditions. So this is really the right time to um, to, to be doing this work as things are getting really severe. Ideally, the, the right time would have been like 30 years ago that we would have sort of got, got right. a handle on all this. But since we're here, <laughs> yes. since we're together now, let's do it. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think uh, you mentioned something that kind of came up with in one of our episodes last season with one of our guests, um, Drew Carter, this idea that these neighborhoods, people are consistently told you need to get out of them. You need to mm. leave. That's how you're going to, you're measuring yeah. success when in reality, uh, there's a lot that can be done by the community themselves to really improve the conditions um, and the environment that these, uh, these neighborhood environments to make it more safe for residents and yeah. um, overall improve quality of life. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think is also really important that I really appreciated uh, when I was looking at some of the projects that Groundwork USA does around these climate safe neighborhoods is that you really do look at these individual cities, these individual communities, and it's very much, um, you know, you, you account for the differences and the nuances mm -hmm. uh, that are mm -hmm. in each of these communities. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the projects that the specific projects that Groundwork USA has done related to these climate uh, safe neighborhoods, could you share a specific example of a climate safe neighborhood project that either you've been involved in or that Groundwork USA has funded and maybe describe the transformative impact that it had on the surrounding community? Yeah, there's a couple different types of projects that we do under the Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership. Um, one is making changes to the built environment, and that can be everything from projects as small as getting rain barrels installed in 40 houses to reduce basement flooding, or something as big as building the Vision to Reality Park in the Claiborne uh, Avenue 
area of New Orleans, an area that has a tremendous amount of flooding. I believe it's still the worst heat island in the nation. Um, and, and so th- these are really broad, but I would say that the commonality between all of the projects that we do, and I'll talk about what the impact is in a second, is that these are resident-led. What we do through the Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership is pull re- a broad intergenerational coalition of residents together to learn why our communities look the way that they do, what the options are for making changes to the built environment, and then why has that change not yet come about? If we know that we need more trees, if we know that we need less pavement, like what's the deal? How come that wealthy neighborhood over there has all these resources? Why has the city invested really heavily in that neighborhood, but not invested in this one? Um, And then work with residents to build their capacity to self-advocate for change, to self-advocate for a more equitable distribution of resources. We are not there to sort of drop in and say, hey, fam, you need a park. We're going to help you build it. That's not what we're here to do. What we're here to do is to come in and say, like, what would make a difference in your life? What would make, what are the concerns that you have? So we do a lot of door-to-door organizing, a lot of door knocking to hear about people's experiences with heat. In Richmond, uh, Virginia, Melissa Guevara, who is a community organizer with Groundwork RBA, um, relayed this story that she chatted with this woman um, about heat. And the woman said, ah, it's always hot in Virginia. It's always been hot. It's going to continue to always be hot. But then she asked the woman about her routine. And and the woman noted that she used to be able to sit on her porch until about 11 o'clock or noon, engaging with neighbors, saying, hey, keeping an eye on things. But now it's gotten so hot over the last 10 years, she has to go inside by 10 because her heart condition is going to act up if she's in that heat. Um, So we really want to understand the ways in which the built environment is impacting people's lives and then use um, the opportunity to uh, engage with them, to self-advocate for more resources, and then to build actual physical infrastructure as a way of helping to ameliorate or, or mitigate that. And we've got a, a couple of different really exciting projects that are in the works that are built right now that if you get in your car or on your bike or on the bus, you can go and visit. Um, one of the ones that I mentioned is the Vision to Reality Park in um, New Orleans, which is it, it is great because it serves a couple of different functions. It's a, a beautiful bioswale that's being designed and built by local New Orleanians uh, that's going to capture stormwater, that's going to help reduce the urban heat island effect, and then create a space for recreation for people to just sit and enjoy themselves. The plants oh, are going to cool. clear and clarify the air um, and help to deal with some of the the, the climate challenges that are presented by having something as big as the Claymore Avenue Expressway. That's one of our bigger projects, but we also have smaller ones like densifying the tree canopy cover, getting um, hundreds of trees planted or in a, Cincinnati, Ohio, the high school, we just completed construction on a new green roof to help capture stormwater um, and reduce air temperature in and around and and thus utility costs as well um, in, in that particular neighborhood. So there's a really broad spectrum. All of our projects are so different because they come from the community. They're built by the community and they're truly for the community. Yeah, that's awesome. I really, I think that story from the resident in particular really shows you how dangerous heat is, but how many people are just on myself included truly until Mm -hmm. we were uh, kind of more introduced into this field of study. You just don't think about how heat is impacting you, but it really Mm -hmm. is impacting you. And when residents have an opportunity to think about those things, it's like, oh, actually there are a lot of differences and this is really impacting my day-to-day routine. Yeah. Where I live in, in just just to know, where I live in Boston, I thought was kind of interesting. So I've only lived here for about 10 years. I'm originally from New York. Um, But I about two years ago, I was noticing like, gosh, there's like, no one has AC here. And we've been having a lot of days above 90 degrees. And I looked it up and in the the decade of the 1960s, you would on average have five days above 90 the entire summer. Fast forward to today, that the summer that I was talking about where I noticed it, we had 13 
days wow. above 90 degrees before July 1st. So, so these things are, are, yeah. are sort of changing and it's incremental and it's, it, it's, it's hard to right. notice. One other story that we ran into is in, in Rhode Island. This woman was telling us that she used to walk her dog on her lunch break. She used to come home and walk the dog. Now she can't yeah. do it anymore in July and August in Rhode Island because the ground is actually burning her dog's paws. Oh my so God. she's had to wow. change the dog walking schedule. She's had to change wow. her work break schedule to accommodate the sun. Right. But it is crazy. Right. You think you think that we would know how to? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why these projects that you're working on are so important because um, changing the climate around these neighborhoods and, and mm-hmm. trying to cool them down is is really critical. I'm wondering. I know that groundwork focuses on specific cities. How mm-hmm. did um, you all choose those cities, or how can um, are you thinking about expanding funding to additional cities? How does that process yeah. kind of work? So Groundwork USA was established uh, in partnership between the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Park Service about 25-ish years ago. And we try to add a new city every one to two years. We put out a call for proposals. A community has to want us there in order for us to go there. And there's sort of a year-long feasibility study process to figure out where to go. Um, One of the things that I think is so amazing about the um, Groundwork Network is that because we're in so many different cities, we get to share a lot of information. And that's allowing our network to be really adaptable in the face of the climate crisis. So for example, a lot of the northern states that we work in, like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Cincinnati, or or, sorry, Ohio, um, are places that have not had to deal with extreme heat as frequently as places like Florida or in Louisiana. And so when we're dealing with heat waves or figuring out how to, for example, how to deal with with working in wildfire smoke, we can turn to our colleagues in California. Tell me what you're learning there. How do you deal with flash floods out in San Diego? How do you deal with hurricanes that we haven't had to traditionally deal with in in other parts of the country in in quite these numbers? How are you dealing with that in Jacksonville? So this national network allows us to approach this problem collectively and, and come up with a lot more wise and stable solutions. That's awesome. Right. That's really fascinating. I'm also curious to know. um, So you mentioned that uh, Groundwork USA was formed between the EPA and what was the other agency? The National Park Service. National Park Service. So um, all these projects, are they funded by the EPA and the National Park Service then? They're not. Um, and I, I think that groundwork plays a really interesting role. And, and the funders, most of our funders for these types of projects are actually uh, philanthropies, folks like the Kresge Foundation, the Bezos Earth Fund, JPB Foundation, uh, lots of mm-hmm. really great organizations and philanthropies that are there. And one of the things yeah. that Groundwork Trusts, so the places where Groundwork Trusts are, are usually the second or third largest city in a given state. They're not the big knockouts like New York or Los Angeles or Seattle. There tend to be smaller places with a history of boom-bust cycles, a history of contaminated land from industry. Um, and we serve as a really interesting um bridge that I think the Groundwork Trust in helping to bring resources to some of these communities to get these projects done. So um, a portion of the work is is funded through federal dollars, but the vast majority of it to date has been through local dollars, local family foundations, national philanthropies, and individual donations. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm just curious to ask because um, uh, in a previous podcast episode that we've done with Dr. Brown, uh, he talked about how you know, a lot of these initiatives that go in to help communities um, make them more resilient, um, you know, the money is given to a community at large, but not properly allocated to these areas that mm. need the most. So organizations like yeah. Groundwork USA are clearly very pivotal 
in um, ensuring that the communities that need the yeah. assistance the most are getting that. Yeah, that is what you put, you like hit, hit the nail on the head. That's one of the big roles that we can play as this intermediary between all of this knowledge, all of these resources and, right. and the needs of the community, because there have been really intentional choices made at the municipal level, at the federal level to invest in certain places and to not invest in others. And one of the things we right. like to do is to show that the visions for res- that residents have in these communities that are hot, that are wet, that are hazy, they're powerful visions. They're ones that not yes. just change places, but Definitely. also change lives. If you're someone yes. who um, maybe has struggled with employment, now you've got a job training program and you can install solar arrays or you know how to put yeah, together that's so awesome. playground equipment, which actually requires like a special permit and license, if you didn't know, um, <laughs> or learn how to do like green infrastructure installation and maintenance. That's so cool. Um, if you are a youth who hasn't had anywhere to like hang out, now you've got a third place, a park to go to, to, to hang out that's nicely programmed. Yeah. If you're someone who is an immigrant from another country to the United States and you're having trouble uh, finding your culturally complementary foods, we've got urban farms and community gardens built on formerly contaminated lots that have been cleaned up so that we can meet that community need. So it's very holistic and it's very people-centered. I think when we talk about the climate crisis and heat and the environment, the dominant conversation historically has been like, like the ice caps are melting, the polar bears are drowning, things things that are really intangible for like the average person sitting in their kitchen. Um, But now- I think Groundwork's able to change the conversation to we are human yes. animals. We're part of the ecosystem. What's the, what's the human cost right. to this and how do we keep ourselves safe? Yes. No, I love everything about that. And also this element of, you know, like unity between, you know, mm. community members, like coming together to make, to build these solar panels or to implement these urban farms. I think that's just awesome. A, a great way to get to know people in your own community and foster that feeling of, um, you know, togetherness so i I mean we've learned definitely in the course of our podcast as well like to um increase social cohesion neighborhood cohesion which is all part of you know healthy Mm. neighborhoods uh so the social factor is very important too so i love everything that you guys are doing in that regard Uh, i'm also just curious to know um working with you know the community members and also stakeholders in these communities uh, do you see that if do you notice if there are any sort of competing goals or interests between those two groups and how do you approach the task of navigating you know the competing priorities between stakeholders and community members when it comes to the climate resilience and you know land use planning and ensuring that the decisions made are in the best interest of the community yeah that is a a tough one and an interesting one. I, I'd say that one of the things that we have the benefit of is having really deep roots in the communities that we work in. So folks know us. Uh, we have a program called the Green Team where youth who are interested in environmental issues like come and hang out with us for paid jobs in the summer, doing everything from like tree planting to community organizing. So we've got really deep roots in the community. And I think over the 20 something years that we've been in existence have been able to build really strong relationships and explore how uh, common and how uh, how interesting the solutions are that that residents have. And it allows us to draw a bridge between the resident ideas and what's feasible from a financial perspective, from a government stakeholder perspective, and from an infrastructure perspective. Um, One of the examples that I think is interesting also comes out of Richmond, Virginia, where there's this intersection that was just like flooding a lot. And the 
immediate thought was like, well, we probably need to add more drainage infrastructure to that. Like the city probably needs to, there's not really storm drains here. Um, but residents actually wanted something different. They said, we would love for you to plant trees all along this, this area for a couple of reasons. One, um, it floods occasionally, but it's always really hot. And if you've sort of walked outside in Virginia in the summer, you know that it gets pretty yeah. hot. And there's a yeah. bus stop right at that intersection that's not covered. Those trees are going to provide shade. The removal of pavement is going to sop up some of that water. The tree is going to suck up that water to um, help reduce flooding and, and flooding infrastructure. And it was a street that people uh, have been really nervous about crossing because it's really fast. There, it's a very straight street, which causes cars to speed. And people we're interested in having these trees as a traffic calming mechanism. So in this way, we see that there's a lot of overlap between what maybe a municipal government is interested in, reducing flooding so that traffic can flow, but then also the priorities of the residents. And you end up with wiser, more stable solutions when you turn to the people who are involved in that space from day to day. So a lot of our work is not to interface, like we're not out front saying, hi, mayor, such and such, we're representing the community. That's not us at all. Uh, what we do do is work with residents to help build their skills and capacity and understanding of how to take those great ideas they have and that very unique you can't pay for the understanding that residents have. Like you should pay residents for their understanding, but like you can't get it yourself if you don't live in the community. So, so how to take that really unique understanding that residents have and put that front and center uh, and help them to interface with these systems for change. Did that answer your question? I feel like that was. Yes, no, you, okay. you did. You're perfect. Um, but I think that point you bring up um, is something public health researchers generally um uh, can learn from, you know, putting the community's needs and perspectives at the forefront, which is another thing that we really do try to emphasize on this podcast, um, simply because I, I think sometimes we tend to think the solution lies in like, you know, let's make another policy or legislation that mm. sounds good, that seems practical, even like what you mentioned with, um, you know, th th your ideas to prevent flooding, but the residents are like, well, why don't we do trees instead? Because they have more than one, they can serve more than one purpose for other issues that we also experience. Um, you know, so I, it's just the community perspective, like you said, it's invaluable. And uh, I, I really do appreciate that Groundwork USA is putting that at the forefront of um, all of the missions and projects you guys have going on. I was just curious to know as well, when it comes to like coming up with a project, do you, you guys like have the community members come into like a, a like a meeting of sorts and like throw out at these ideas and brainstorm or what does that process look like? Yeah, it, it's a very slow process. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things that is kind of hard for our culture. American culture has a lot of really great aspects, but one of the ones we do have is we want it done yesterday and we have to move really yeah. fast. But getting to know people, building trust, understanding their priorities takes a really long time. So while we do have meetings and things around specific projects, we're sort of always engaging with residents about what are your priorities? What are your interests? And one of the things that's very important and is core to the principles of equity that, that we like to uh, to, to practice is to meet people where they are. And we mean that figuratively and we mean that very literally. For on the literal end, that means showing up to where people are. So, you know, are the people at the farmer's market? Are they at the PTA meeting? Are they at church? Are they commuting down this corridor? Can we grab them on the bus and talk to them? Um, and then I think meeting them where they are figuratively is also understanding, you know, what is their understanding of the way the local government is structured? What is their understanding of their own needs? And can we hear a little bit more detail to understand what the community might need and, and, and help to turn that into projects? Um and maybe people are not interested in that conversation right now. We totally have times where we have an opportunity to say like build a park or a playground and residents are coming in and saying, we don't really care about that right now. We care about jobs. We care about 
our kids being safe. We care about public safety concerns in this area. We care about our utility bills, which are too high. But you know what? All of those actually have really good overlaps with climate adaptation issues. So part of the work that we do too is weaving multiple priorities and finding where you can pet two cats with one hand. Maybe you're concerned about having um, sort of lower electricity bills. Well, that's a really great opportunity for us to look at how to cool your building and how to get energy savings so that you can save money that you can spend somewhere else instead of on air conditioning. Maybe you're concerned about jobs in your community. Hey, we've got a ground core and a green team. Both are vehicles to train older adults and younger adult, younger kids, respectively, on how to do everything from installing and maintaining a bioswale uh, to white roof painting to more advanced construction and the development of a park. Uh, and, and so being involved in that can help you get the money that your family needs and the jobs and stability that your family needs. So, so I think okay. that um, one of the things I, I really love about working with Groundwork and that I love about the Groundwork Network is that we're really focused on meeting community priorities. And community priorities are like community members. They're complex. They have multiple overlapping needs and they have solutions that we can find if we, if we listen deeply, if we communicate and we put residents in the driver's seat. That's really awesome. I think the um, just the idea that um, you know you. I, I think that this that you're right that people struggle with this. The community engaged um, projects and mm -hmm. projects that best serve the community take time, and you can't really quantify or measure. Um, how involved or how engaged you are in the community. It's mm -hmm. only when you see these successful interventions that were the efforts of, you know, organizations like Groundwork and the community members that you can really see, oh, okay, like this intervention was clearly driven by community mm -hmm. efforts. Uh, something else that I really appreciate that it seems like you not, you guys are not only engaging with the community and community members, but you're also providing them valuable skill sets that they can continue to use. I mean, I think advocacy is a huge component of, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's just an invaluable skill, especially for people uh, who may live in disadvantaged neighborhoods because those neighborhoods haven't had advocates in the past because there's been, um, you know, a, a very lack of, uh, there's been no, that people just don't have a desire to listen. Um, and so even equipping people with the skills and the knowledge that they can change their environment and they can improve their neighborhood so that they don't have to move out of it is really um, mm -hmm. awesome and incredible. And I, I think um, that was a, a huge part of why we wanted to talk to you because it sounds, these, these initiatives are so important and the work that you're doing so successfully is really important. Um, and I know that we've been talking a lot about, you know, the, um, nuances of different communities and we need to, um, you know, uh, speak to individual community needs. Mm -hmm. But if you could implement, um, one or a couple of some of these climate safe neighborhood initiatives that Groundwork USA has been working on and funding mm -hmm. in all neighborhoods across the U.S. What, what, what would you choose and why? I think one of the ones that I would implement would be to get maps into the hands of more folks and the skills to be able to engage with these geospatial materials. Uh, one thing that I very lightly mentioned is that we use geospatial analysis, which is just using uh, images from satellites and, and data to create real maps of what the earth looks like right now and what our neighborhoods look like right now to understand how our communities function and, and, and how they look differently. When we do our door knocking, when we do our community advocacy, 
work, our engagement with residents, we, we use maps pretty heavily to show a couple of things. One, what do things look like right now? And, and that's something that's, that's been really powerful for folks. Uh, when we, I mentioned earlier that when we did door knocking in Virginia, um, people would say, oh, it's Virginia. It's hot. It's always hot. It's always going to be hot. When we showed them maps that so we're standing at their door with uh, paper maps and acetate transparencies. If you ever, for people who are old enough on this to listen, um, those sort of clear pieces of plastic that your teacher might write on on the overhead projector, they're effectively like clear pieces of plastic you can print on. And we would go to door to door and talk to folks and show them, gosh, it's, um, you know, on average, this wealthier, whiter neighborhood across town is about 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit cooler at the same time on the same summer day. That was something that was really powerful. Or when you look at a map of yeah. Elizabeth, New Jersey, and you say, hey, how come the northeast part of the city where all the Latino people live is the area that also has the least amount of trees? It helps people to understand that the way that they're experiencing the climate crisis in their neighborhoods doesn't have to be that way. We, it's, it's not a mystery what we need to do to keep people safe from the climate crisis. We just need to go to the rich neighborhoods and look around and we know that it's fine. Yeah. Elevate people's homes, get rid of excess pavement, lots of tree canopy cover, ways to retain stormwater. Like we know what the, these pieces are. And so using maps as a platform for conversations about equity can be so powerful. We talked a lot in our climate safe neighborhoods work about historical rate race-based housing segregation. We use redlining as a proxy for that. Um, and, and that's been really powerful because I, I think that sometimes in our culture, we have a hard time talking about issues like race, like class, um, right. like certain communities being disadvantaged. And using these maps as a platform for equity allows us to ask really hard questions without it turning into an us versus them, you versus me. It's these are the facts. This is what it looks like. What are we going to do about it together? Yeah. So we've seen people who don't believe in systemic racism have their minds change and and really wonder about that question of why is one side of this river where the black residents live so much hotter and wetter and uh, more environmentally dangerous? Why is the air quality so bad here in the Iron Triangle in Richmond, California? Um, and, and start to shift their perspective about if systemic racism exists or start to shift their perspective about like, even if you don't believe in the climate crisis, if you know that this neighborhood is 10 degrees hotter than this other neighborhood, yeah. we have a mission together. And that mission is to cool down that neighborhood so that it's equal. People are very sort of relevant to fairness. So I think um, being able to bring this, this data in a way that's understandable, that's usable, gives residents a whole lot of power. Because somebody maybe didn't listen to you before when you were just complaining that your basement was flooding. But if you're bringing a map that shows that 45% of the homes in your yeah. neighborhood are flooding, while no one's homes are flooding in the neighborhood across the street, that gives you a lot more advocacy power. So that would be one of the, right. one of the, the things. So it was a very long answer, but I, I think there's a huge amount of potential in this geospatial analysis. I I love that. I love that answer for a number of reasons. I think the first one being that we have, I mean, us in this public health research space have a lot of these maps already. Mm. And people, we just, it because of the barriers to getting it, disseminating information to the public, there is just a, it, pe people in the public just don't know where to find these maps or maybe don't know how to read them because yeah. us as public health researchers are not making them accessible. And so I do really um, quickly want to shout out um, gr the Groundwork USA website because on your Climate Safe Neighborhoods page, there's, you know, you guys have each of the cities that you're doing work in. And so I'm um, 
grew up near Denver and went to school in Denver. And so I looked at the Denver specific page and the way that, and I would really encourage our listeners, we'll put the link in our description, but I would really encourage our listeners to look at these maps because what the job, I mean, you all have done a great job of putting these maps with different, with what neighborhoods were previously led, uh, redlined, what impervious space is there? What's the distribution? What is the temperature distribution? Um, and truly, I I think you're correct that it is really powerful when people are like, oh, you can't deny the facts, the facts of these drastic temperature differences or these drastic experiences that are not happening randomly, as you mentioned before. Yeah. These things happened intentionally. And so I love that answer because I think that maps are also some of the easiest Mm. things. I mean, people know their city, they know where these places are. Um, and then there's no, you know, they, they just look at the map, they can yeah. kind of see what's happening. And we have them and you don't, you know, it's the internet exists. So people can view all yes. of this stuff. Um, and also so really is free, which like, like blows my mind. Yes, Other countries exactly. don't have access to this, but we do. But you know, then again, you need someone to turn them into a map. And that's why I encourage anyone right. who's listening who maybe doesn't have access to, to a GIS specialist, like check out your local universities for people who are in public health or planning departments. They often have to take the students and graduate courses often have to do practicum and they will sometimes create maps for you for free and, and, and help you with that. And um, I, I want to give a shout out. So our website, groundworkusa.org, check out the climate safe neighborhood stuff. And a shout out to my colleague, Lawrence Hoffman, who is the one who creates these maps for our program. And he likes to say, and I think he's very wise, that maps are only as powerful as the people who hold them. So so transitioning and getting this data from a bunch of ones and zeros that are coming down from satellites into something that the average person can comprehend is a huge act of service for now and and, and for the future. You mentioned Denver, and I think Denver is, is a really good example of the ways in which residents can then use maps to come up with specific asks. Because sometimes you know the problem, but you don't know what the solutions are. Residents in the Global Alaria Swansea neighborhoods of Denver, which is in the northwest part of the city, have always known that like, hey, we don't got, got a lot of trees. It's kind of hot. There's no curb appeal. And they sort of vaguely have been asking trees for a really long time. But when they looked at these maps, it was residents who identified this, that in the GES neighborhood, they have a 1% tree canopy cover. That means that 1% of the land is covered in trees. Uh, but if you were to take the bus across the river to a formerly green-lined neighborhood that's wealthier, majority white, they've got a 26% tree canopy cover. If you get off the bus wow. and you walk to an area where the bus doesn't go, still in the city of Denver, you're closer to 60% tree canopy cover in some of these neighborhoods. Wow. That wow. helped them to come up with a specific ask from the municipality. We want 10,000 trees in 10 years and a say in future funding distribution. Now you've got a concrete ask and you can measure the success or failure of your advocacy measures methods against that measurement. So this data can be really, really powerful for the average person. And, and these residents are not people who, you know, have specialized degrees. They're just, just kind of the average person that are trying to do the best they can for their families. Yeah, I, I love that answer. Uh, I was actually leading up to the question that I was going to ask you next, but to your point of having these maps as an easily accessible, understandable um, sort resource for people to say, okay, this is the reality of the situation. And from this, we can derive like tangible, effective solutions, which is another thing I love about everything you've been talking about. You're very solution oriented and, you know, like this is, this is what's been going on. So why haven't we come up with the steps to actually like ameliorate it. So I, these maps, I definitely agree, would be like an excellent way to be able to do that. And uh, 
hopefully a, a part of why we are doing this podcast is to bridge these gaps between what's going on in the research world and what's going on in, on the ground in these communities. Uh, so everybody who's a researcher listening to this, um, yeah. who works <laughs> with ArcGIS tools, making these sorts of things, you know, working with organizations like Ground USA, I mean, that's a perfect way to be able to employ a lot of the work we're doing in the labs uh, into the real world and uh, implement effectual change. So I, that's an awesome answer that you gave. Uh, but going off of that, you already started to answer this question, but I'm curious to know what steps can be taken on, you know, different levels of government, like the community level and the individual level, you mentioned municipality, uh, to reduce heat risk generally. I feel very strongly that all of the change that is going to keep us out of the deepest trouble in the advancement of the climate crisis is going to happen at the municipal level. Um, and I think that there's a, a couple of things. There's what people can do to encourage their municipality to do the right thing. And there's what the municipality should be looking at to doing the right thing. Um, and I think one of the things that, that's super important for average folks to to learn is like to, to just learn like what your municipal governance system is. You know, who is your city councilor? What's the difference between your mayor and your city councilor? When do they come up with the budget? These are all different ways to understand where your avenues for intervention are. Uh, I used to have a boss who was like brilliant and you know, those people who are like brilliant and they scare you with their brilliance because they're so smart. Yes. Um, this, uh, this, this boss that I used to have that, that would say like, don't ask, don't get. Uh, and, and I think that's a really big mantra in local government. Um, asking for trees to be put into your city, asking for the city to pay attention. Like you do need to be noisy. You do need to get attention um, for these communities. And um, I, I would say on the sort of the government end, the things that, that municipalities should be looking into to be making change or doing things like reducing parking requirements, uh, forcing uh, new developments to deal with things like their stormwater, because that's causing a lot of flooding. If you've got a gigantic parking lot that you're not using and you haven't put a cistern in or you don't have trees, um, I think that that other requirements about um, sort of who cares for trees is something that's really important. A lot of cities like Denver um, put the responsibility of taking care of street trees onto residents. That's a, that's a huge expense that you didn't ask for. And it, it is really disproportionately hard when getting a visit from an arborist can cost like a thousand fifteen hundred dollars. So I think looking into policies for ways for the collective to, by which I mean like all of the taxpayers in the city, all of the people in the city, um, can sort of collectively hold the the, the burden, financial burden, time burden of getting the um, the sort of tree canopy up and healthy and equitable is, is something that's really important. And I think using things like maps to benchmark progress for your city and, and ask those tough questions. Why is this neighborhood that I'm sitting in right now? And I mean that literally, I'm looking out my window. I live in a formerly yellow line neighborhood that does not have a tree canopy cover. Um, why does my neighborhood look so different? But if I were to cross the train tracks that are at the end of my street, how come the tree canopy cover is so lush? So make sure that both the municipality and residents are asking those comparison um, and critical questions about why things look the way they are. They don't look the way they do by accident. It means they're not going to change by accident. Oh, that's awesome. And I think that, yeah, being, being curious and being willing to explore these things is is a huge component of learning about them in the first yeah. place. Um, and as, so you, I mean, you have a really broad um, perspective. It, you have a lot of experience and a broad perspective on this. So I'm, I'm very interested to know um, what are some of the longer term goals or visions that you have for this climate safe neighborhoods project um, going forward? 
Climate Safe Neighborhoods started as a specific project uh, in five cities. We've grown it to 16 cities, and we're now thinking of it less as a specific project and more of a philosophy of addressing community concerns, um, to, which is, and I would say the philosophy behind Climate Safe Neighborhoods is, you know, again, working with residents to understand why do things look the way they do, and understanding and identifying resident priorities in the community, and then building resident capacity to make change happen, both that bigger systems change of how resources are distributed, and then also what's on the ground. Um, and so, so a lot of what we're hearing from residents is a really deep concern about air quality. I, I think that both extreme heat and the wildfire smoke that we've been getting um, from the West, from Canada... Mm-hmm. Where, where I live in, um, where I live in Boston, uh, has has really put people on edge. But residents have actually been complaining about that for a really long time. Concerns about indoor air quality from things like stoves. Yeah. Um, a lot of uh, the residents that we work with, their homes are built similar to the places I grew up, expressways that are giving off a tremendous amount of pollution and are um, giving their children respiratory illnesses. And that's really scary when, when you're a parent. I know that was that was hard for my mother thinking like, gosh, we're going to have another hospital bill because um, this kid can't breathe. And um, that, that's really financially stressful for families. So, so that's something that we um, right. want to follow the lead of residents on and are working on doing things like installing air quality monitors at public housing authorities and at major sources of pollution um, to help understand that connection a little bit better of why things look the way that they do to then start moving towards interventions. Uh, I think that urban forestry is also something that we're really interested in. That's a huge opportunity for job training. And like, you, like in terms of a, a bank for your buck, trees are surprisingly expensive. Like to plant a tree and maintain it costs like the thousand to fifteen hundred dollars over the course of three years, which is like surprising. You're like, you are a tree. Why do you cost so much? You come from an acre. But they're but they're like really expensive. Yeah. But it but it does um provide it, you get like a lot of bank for your buck. You get water water retention, you get pavement removal, you get evapotranspiration, which is basically the leaves creating little air conditioning cycles, which actually cool the air around you. You get beautification. Sometimes you get food. Yeah. I finally got the city to plant a, a tree on my block and it's a service berry. So we'll be able to eat the berries from that tree. So it's a really That's good awesome. Yeah. And, and so I think urban yeah. forestry is something that we're really interested to and in engaging residents in the long-term stewardship of that, right? Because it's not just going to be us plopping infrastructure and we want people to be able to be invested in and, and care for those changes. So ultimately, we're following residents' leads. And, and I think that there's so many aspects and that sort of multidimensional um, components to the solutions or mitigation measures to the climate crisis that I, I don't think we'll have any shortage of projects over the next sort of couple of decades and are really thankful for the uh, thoughtfulness and, and partnership of residents in our communities. Definitely. Awesome. I think I can't wait to see all of the the stuff that you all are working on in the future. I also yes. think that that's probably the best definition of eva- evapotranspiration I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe some biology teachers out there can um, use that and increase some interest and understanding in that process. Yeah. Um, we have one more question before we let you go. And you spoke to this a little bit at the beginning. Um, but, you know, because we are so focused on this neighborhood uh, environment and how mm-hmm. your uh, neighborhood impacts your health, um, we are we ask every one of our guests um, if you can, you know, describe what you already did a little bit, but describe your neighborhood environment growing up, uh, what that was like and kind of how did that environment maybe influence different aspects of your life and obviously your career trajectory as well. 
Yeah. I, as I mentioned, I really loved my neighborhood. It was mostly African-American black with a few uh, West African and Afro-Caribbean families uh, and was, was just a really close neighborhood. It was a formerly redlined neighborhood, um, a neighborhood near two major expressways. So struggled with a lot of air pollution, struggled with a lot of extreme heat, uh, a lot of flooding in all of our basements and not a lot of green space. The, the, the areas that could have been in green space, many of them were paved over, uh, but also a really wonderful, loving community, a huge pack of kids running up and down the block all summer, uh, adults that treated other kids like their own. Um, and, and I think in some, some ways it was just an incredibly joyful place that I wish still existed. Uh, but, you know, everybody left. Those that, that, that could, um, you know, go to college and go somewhere else did. And eventually the neighborhood gentrified and displaced. And is, is just really different than, than the way that it was. And I think that that's something that I'm um, very interested in is creating it or lending whatever skills I do have, whatever work I can do towards making it so people have the choice about whether or not they stay in their communities, that they don't feel like yeah. they have to tell their children that they have to leave their language and their culture and their family and, you know, that favorite corner that they used to hang out on with their friends um, in order to have a park bench to sit on instead of a burnt out couch or in order to play in a park instead of a dusty lot. And um, people should not have to leave. People shouldn't have to be displaced. And I, I think that's a lot of what my work is, is helping people create and keep the homes that they want for themselves. So that's something that I wish I could have done. I wish I could go back to my neighborhood in some ways. Um, but uh, I, I think part of my mission is making sure that no one feels like they have to tell their kids, you got to go. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, yeah. I think that that is... Yeah, it's huge. We would love to be able to make neighborhoods places where people want to stay and can have the opportunity to choose to stay. Thank you so much, Kate. We really, really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, We really, really enjoyed this discussion. So thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you. I I, I really appreciate the invitation. And I I hope that one thing that that folks can leave the conversation with is that um, the climate crisis feels really overwhelming. And if you have a case of the bubble guts about it, that's super normal. But uh, change is possible. Change is already happening. Uh, We can make our neighborhoods safer. Um, So check out our website, grammarqsa.org. Check out, I have a book coming out in 2024 that is focused on what climate solutions. It doesn't have a title yet. I'm working on that with my editor. But the, the, the premise of the book is you're a busy person who's worried about the climate crisis but can't dedicate a ton of time and energy what are the things you can do in a handful of hours stolen from nights and weekends to make your neighborhood safer from the climate crisis so so change is possible that is awesome check out our website check out my book when it eventually comes out (laughs) yeah and and you can do it we can do it we gotta do it we don't have another choice actually yes we can (laughs) that's been the best thing about this this season so far is i think for me and i think everyone it just feels so overwhelming when you learn about this stuff it's distressing but truly having the opportunity to talk to you and provide a platform to people who are really doing some really awesome solutions-based work. We are so um, happy to have the opportunity to kind of uplift and um, highlight some of that work. And for those, for those of us, the listeners um, joining us today, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on our Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. You can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recording of our conversations. And we really hope that you will join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation of a healthy nation.